What's really going on, everybody? We are back again, episode number 69. Before we get into it, please be sure to follow us on social media at WRGOPod on Instagram and Twitter. Be sure to check out our new merchandise that is celebrating change agents that includes the late John Lewis, the new uh, Georgia Senator, Senator Raphael Warnock, and Stacey Abrams. You can check those out at what's really going on pod.com slash shop. Uh, we have a special guest today, one who is very special to me. Uh, the three of us, each of us, Mackenzie, Henry, and myself, we all have different origin stories. Henry in the communication space, Mackenzie uh, in the journalist space, and me in the political space. That is because this guest that we have knocked on my door and told me to come work for him in the summer of 2014. Uh, so we are proud to be joined uh, by Montgomery County, Montgomery County Councilman at large, uh, Will Juando. Councilman, how are you doing? It's good to be with you, Noah and, and Henry and Mackenzie. And, and I don't know if I told you or if I asked you, I don't know, but you know, either way, <laughs> either, either way you listen. So I'm, I'm appreciative. Yeah. So it's, I'm doing well. It's good to be with you all. Yeah, of course. So I think uh, the first question that we have is obviously, you know, COVID surrounds our world before we recorded, we had a conversation about, you know, your kids and how, you know, you're all in the house and what that's like. Uh, you know, you recently called Governor Hogan's executive order that would lift capacity restrictions uh, irresponsible. Um, what course do you wish that the governor kind of would have taken uh, with regard to COVID restrictions? Yeah, well, you know, I, I did say it was irresponsible and I still feel that way. And, and unfortunately, um, I would have liked to be wrong about that assessment, but we're seeing now uh, just just even a week, 10 days after it's, he uh, opened up the state, which included open up, opening up indoor dining restrictions and bars uh, right ahead of St. Patrick's Day. Um, we're already seeing case counts go up across the state. Um, we have multiple variants. All three of the variants are present here, uh, the UK, the Brazilian, um, and then there's uh, the New York variant and there's other variants that are forming. Um, and we don't have, we only have about 12% uh, of our population vaccinated. And, you know, and when you look at the disparities, you know, white residents have received four times vaccination of black residents in a state where black residents make up 31% of the population. And that's certainly true in my county. It's true in Prince George's County. It's true in Baltimore City and County and other places. And as I mentioned, we were talking before we came on, my kids went back to school this week for the first time. Uh, 19,000 elementary school kids in Montgomery County Public Schools went back to school. Uh, others are set to go back in middle school and high school in April. And why would we endanger that by opening up restaurants and bars uh, and making it less safe? while we don't have enough of our population vaccinated. Uh, I think the prudent step would have been to wait until we, you know, the president said we're gonna have enough vaccinations for everyone 16 and above by the end of May. Uh, we needed to take, continue to take a cautious approach. And that's what we've done in Montgomery County. We have the lowest case rate in the state, I think because of that, uh, even though we're the largest jurisdiction the most diverse jurisdiction. So I just think it was irresponsible without the amount of vaccinations and the inequity in vaccination and we're trying to reopen school. It just was not a uh, not a smart move. It was an economic political move, not a health based move. I can agree with that, um, especially being in Georgia where they're not taking any precautions. They're just like, you know, come, we're open. Come on, we're not worried about anything. Uh, so you kind of mentioned how, like, you know, others have more access than Black and Brown communities. And as a member of the legislative branch, I would like to know, like, what step have you or anyone that you know that you're working with on any committees have taken to ensure that, like, there's access for us as black and brown people um, to get the vaccine? 
Yeah, it's a great question, Henry. And yeah, you're right. You know, I know it's always relative, right? You know, in other parts of the country, Georgia and Florida, you know, they're just they're in Texas. They said you, you don't even have to wear a mask. You know, it's just so it's it's a lot of craziness going on that unfortunately is going to cost people their life. And um and and it's it's uh so you know what a couple of things we're doing in the vaccine equity. You know, we were really intentional about how we use our vaccinations that we get at our health department. Right now we're receiving. Uh, you know, next week we'll receive, for example, about 8,000 doses in our health department. And we are targeting those doses to the hardest hit zip codes where COVID has hurt our communities the most. And that is in our Black and Latino zip codes. Um, and so we've set up clinics in those areas. We're giving prioritization to those zip, people that live in those zip codes. I've actually called on us to go a step further and open up vaccine eligibility to younger Black and Latino residents. If you look at the average age uh, you know, life expectancy of a black person in this country, it's around 70 years old. So when you were vaccinating the 75 plus, you know, we are disproportionately automatically going to get less vaccination because we're n- we don't have as many people. And then when you look at who dies when they get COVID, uh, a 55 to 64 year old black resident or Latino resident dies at a higher rate than a 65 to 74 year old white or Asian resident who gets COVID. So we die 10 years younger, we get sicker, um, and so I think we need to lower that eligibility, just like you would if someone, two people came to the hospital, one uh, is bleeding out and the other one has a cut, you're going to go and help and triage the person who needs the help. So when you have limited vaccine, you have to do that. And that's where we're at right now. Hopefully uh, in the next couple, coming weeks and months, we have more vaccine. You're still going to have inequity, inequity problems because you know people don't have transportation, they don't have fast internet. They don't know how to navigate the websites. So there's a whole host of issues, but we've prioritized by zip code. I hope we'll take this next step on lowering the age for black and Latino residents. Um, we're actually gonna be talking about that next week. Uh, I'm gonna be introducing a board of health regulation to do that. Uh, we're also doing mobile visits you know, to people who can't get out and communities that are hard hit. So we're doing a whole range of things. Um, the unfortunate part is we only get 8,000 doses. We have 1.1 million residents. So 8,000 doses a week, well, you know, you can do the math. It's going to take a long time. We need everyone else to have that equity strategy. So we push the governor for the doses he's given to pharmacies and hospitals. They need to have the same type of approach. Right now, it's just if you can, if you got a fast internet and you've got a car, you can get online, find your dose and get it. And that's what's happening. And that's why you have uh, the inequity. So we, the, the final thing I'll say is we push for a mass uh, vaccination site in our jurisdiction and a single registration system. You all know, you know, if, if you've got to go to 12 different sites to try to find a site, you know, that that's just inequitable right off off the bat. And that's what a lot of people are having to do. So so those are some of the things we're doing here and, and some of the things we're advocating for. Yeah. Yeah, so speaking about um, you pushing for things and advocating for things, um, you recently tweeted about your introduction of the spe- of special appropriation that would create um, support for small businesses and rental assistance programs programs for other small businesses. What would you hope that this funding does, and what would it look like to be supported? Yeah, thanks, Mackenzie. That's a really important question. You know, one of the most devastating things about what I have called. And I'm not the only one, but I, you know, I've been saying it for a while. You know, there are at least three pandemics going on. There's the COVID health pandemic, where you know, 500,000 plus people have died. Many more have been sick. Um, 
you know, it's obviously been disproportionate in who has been, who, who, who has the highest case count, communities of color, who has died the most. Then you have the economic fallout, right? Uh, who has lost their job? Who is having to put themselves as a frontline worker at risk? Um, who has lost their home or can't pay their rent? Um, how many businesses have closed? And that's what this appropriation is, is, is a targeted at. Um, the third, just to finish that thought, the third pandemic is the racial and social justice pandemic, right? We, during, we've, we can't forget that in June, we watched a murder for 10 minutes uh, when George Floyd had the state, a state sanctioned murder, you know, uh, knees on his, on, on his neck. Uh, Breonna Taylor was shot in her home with an illegal warrant. Um, and Ahmaud Aubrey chased down by vigilantes, you know, go too many, you know, too many to list. Um, and Jacob Blake. So, uh, but on this, in this uh, economics front, um, you know, we have almost half of black businesses that are small black businesses are gone, mm-hmm. gone, shuttered, closed nationally. Uh, 70% of those that remain in a recent poll just last month said that they, they're going to run out of cash in the next three months or less. Um, and so what's the number one driver for a small retail black or brown or women-owned business? It's, it's your rent. Um, and we have a lot of folks that uh, are struggling to keep their space. Uh, as the economy reopens, they've got to be there so that they can have business. Um, and so what this is targeted at, this is a $1.5 million appropriation that's targeted specifically at women-owned, Black, and Latino-owned businesses that make less than 500000 a year. So these are small businesses, somewhere between one and six employees usually that are really the majority of businesses in the country. You know, in our mm-hmm. county, for example, they make up businesses that have less than 10 people make up 60% of the businesses. And so, and they're disproportionately businesses of color. You know, these, you think of your small grocery store, your, your uh, esthetician, your nail salon, you know, go down the list. And um, so they have not also, they have also been disproportionately excluded or not in receipt of the PPP money and other state and local funds. So this is targeting it just for them. So they don't have to get in line with everybody else. And we're doing $10,000 or up to three months rent, whichever is the lower number. And so they'll be able to, I'm trying to, that'll have a committee hearing next week and hopefully pass shortly thereafter. And we can get that money in their hands because we have to, you know, uh, try to keep these businesses alive for the communities, but also for the people they employ and for the residents that live in those communities. Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate to hear that because um, I can't count on two hands how many um, GoFundMes I've supported throughout the pandemic to keep businesses open. So that's really great to hear. Yeah, and to, can, and to continue on kind of the economic piece that you had uh, spoken about, uh, we know that in December you introduced uh, the more housing for more people, some, some of that legislation yeah. that sought to protect the rights of uh, renters, what caused you to write the bill and what problem are you trying to fix with its introduction? You know, there's, we have a, we had a housing crisis before the pandemic, right? Um, But it's just been made even worse um, in our county, but across the country, it's it's expensive, housing is expensive. um, And, uh, you know, you're trying to figure it out. And if you lost your job, that's difficult. So the first thing we did, even before this latest package was we, I introduced a rent stabilization bill that passed that said you can't raise rent during the pandemic, right? You would think it would make sense. No one should be raising rent, but we, we were getting you know uh, reports of people raising rents and taking advantage during the pandemic. And so we, we, we passed that. 
then we put out over $20 million in rental assistance, you know, $4,000 to $6,000 a month uh, for folks who are falling behind. But you, for, you remember, this has happened for over a year, right? You know, we just, so some people have been out of work for a year um, and things have stacked up. And now we have courts starting to reopen uh, and they're preparing to process evictions, right? And, and that's, a, that's a big issue. So more housing for more people is like, how do we build more housing different housing types at different price points so that we can try to bring the the cost down because it's supply demand. If you have more housing, theoretically the cost comes down, but that's not enough because, you know, people want to build expensive housing, right? So you got to try to have some requirement for affordability and then you have to protect renters. Um, And and so the other bill is an anti-rent gouging bill that would cap rent increases to around, you know, 3% a year. Um, so that people can have consistency and know how much their rent's going to go up. Right now you have someone comes in and they get a notice for 10%. If you're paying $1,000 a month and they're saying, all right, next year you're paying 1100 that that's going to matter for a lot of people right. uh, and, sh- and shouldn't happen. So, so that's what those two proposals are. It would allow different housing types near Metro and near transit and then protect renters who live in those corridors where the rent is usually the highest and try to keep that price at a consistent level so that they can stay there. So that's what those proposals are about. It's um, interesting you speak about the quarters of people who stay around that metropolitan area, um, which is typically heavily police, which are kind of transition to our next like question. In Montgomery County, you've been like one of the leading voices on police reform, which I personally appreciate. <laughs> there has been a lot more of attention paid on the issue of police accountability and like reforms uh, since the killings, like you said earlier, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, which was like almost a year ago. Um, what do you think is the chance of you achieving any like, you know, accountability or progress um, yeah. in Montgomery County towards police reform? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a great question. It, uh, first, I'll say we've, we've done some. And I'm happy to say that, but there's more to do, right? You know, I'm never satisfied. We've got a lot of work to do. You know, policing is, is as you all know, is wrought with a history that is based in white supremacy. Uh, the first police forces were formed in the Carolinas in the 1700s as slave patrols to uh, round up escaped enslaved individuals. Um, and then the police were used to enforce discrimination and uh, anti-voting rights and LGBTQ rights and labor unions. And so they've been used as a weapon for a lot of their history. And so you understand why communities don't have that trust. Uh, And when you look at the stats, you know, who's been arrested and for what? It's completely disproportionate, right? You know, the the 2 million people we have in in jail, a lot of them look like you and I uh, on this call. And that's because of discriminatory policies and and enforcement and prosecution. So the system, unfortunately has functioned the way it was designed to function and put certain people in jail and denied liberty to them. So, and taken their life in the case of George Floyd and so many others, right? That didn't just happen. It just happened that people saw it, right? Some people who didn't know it was happening saw it for the first time in a brutal and horrible way. Um, so we've done a couple things. Uh, we passed, the first bill I introduced when I got elected was an independent investigation bill that requires anytime an officer kills a resident, our police shouldn't be investigating that. You need an independent body to come in and investigate it so that there's transparency and accountability. And then that report 
every witness testimony, what happened, it all needs to be made public because that's when we need the public needs to know what happened for accountability, but also for so that we can change whatever we need to change as far as policy so it doesn't happen again, right? It's unacceptable if an unarmed black or brown person gets killed and we're just like, oh, well, you know, it happened, I'm sorry. No, we have to make changes. We have to make changes so in our policy and our recruitment and in in what we prioritize uh, in our accountability system so that it doesn't happen again. Um, so we passed that. Then uh, this summer after George Floyd was murdered and Breonna Taylor were murdered, we passed a use of force policy, a sweeping use of force policy, banning you know knees to the neck and banning no-knock warrants in drug cases. I wanted to get them all gone completely, but I had to compromise. But drug cases are over 50% of the no-knock warrants, um, ban including the one in Breonna's house. Uh, banning uh, shooting at moving vehicles, requiring officers to intervene if they see an officer committing a crime, like in the case of Derek Chauvin, you know, those other officers stood there and watched, right? Now under our, they could be held liable if they don't intervene. Um, so things like that, some of the real basic things that should be happening already, but that aren't in a lot of jurisdictions. Um, and then we raise the standard of when deadly force can be used. Right now, the biggest problem with this is that uh, an officer is, it gets off, and the reason we don't see convictions is if they reasonably believe, believed that their life was in danger, right? And they thought the force was reasonable. Uh, and that's a very broad standard uh, and does it leaves a lot of, you know, open interpretation. We raised the standard to the force had to be necessary, and there were no other alternatives that could have been used that were less lethal. Um, and that will help on the back end. Hopefully, we, you know, it doesn't happen on the front end, but it'll help deter this for us to hold people accountable if that force was not necessary and there could have been less lethal or no force used at all, which is in some of these situations. So, so we passed that, but there's more we have to do. Um, we have to change who we recruit, who we, how we train them, what we tell them to do, where we deploy them. Um, you know, so I'm working on proposals in all those areas uh, and we need more community involvement and discipline, right? And, and, and transparency on knowing which officers have done what and what their records are. A lot of those times those records are sealed and they get extra rights that they shouldn't have when they do something wrong and they don't have to talk to uh, someone or make a report for several days and things like that. So we're, we're, we're working on all of those things. You can't fix a system that's been going for 400 years overnight, um, but, but we have to, because as you all know, it's, it's producing you know, death and in the worst case, but in, in a lot of other cases, trauma, uh, you know, getting in the way of employment and education opportunities and incarceration. So we've, we've got to fix the system. Uh, it's, it's good to hear your, that you're actively like taking on that, uh, especially when you highlight issues of like how it affects the youth of black and brown communities. Um, and I know, and Noah has like kind of made it aware to both of us that you've been like actively trying to get police removed from Montgomery County's yeah. like public schools. <laughs> How do you think the work you're doing there will aid that? You know, um, one of the things with police reform is like, we need to change what they focus on and where they are and who they're interacting with. Mm -hmm. And the problem is you get disproportionality when you have police responding to things they shouldn't be responding to. Uh, schools is a perfect example. Uh, you know, a school should be a place of safety, place of support, place, place of love, a place of education, not a place where uh, of enforcement, right? Now, we, that doesn't mean we're trading safety, right? We have security guards, we have restorative justice. One of the things I just passed was $750,000 for restorative justice training, which is a proven model 
uh, that reduces the need for disparate discipline and arrest. And it's gonna train all of our staff in 40 middle schools, 1400 staff in this kind of approach. Uh, we need psychologists, we need counselors, we need crisis intervention counselors. Uh, we need, uh, in some cases, in some of our schools, we need street outreach networks or gang intervention units where you have uh, violence interrupters. There's a lot of solutions out there that don't involve a police officer with a gun patrolling the hallways. Because what you get when you have that is 50% of the people arrested in our schools are black, even though black students make up 20% of the population. Uh, and, and then you get uh, our Latino students about 28% of the arrest and students with disabilities disproportionately arrested. That's what you get when you have police in schools. They're not, that's what not, and I'm not saying they shouldn't come in for programmatic functions, you know, assemblies, traffic and traffic help, all those. Sure, let's build those positive relationships, but they don't need to be in the schools in an enforcement capacity. And so we're, we're making progress. I think in the next several weeks, actually, we'll be able to announce that we are going to be removing our police from our schools. It's been a, it's been a battle, and we're going to be making these investments in these other supports: psychologists, nurses, social workers, um, that our kids need, particularly coming back from COVID. You know, and so so I think it's an example of like mental health. Like we don't need our police responding when someone's dealing with a mental health crisis, right? It's particularly if they're nonviolent. You know, people dealing with substance abuse, homelessness. Those are not things that should be criminalized. And we need to get our police out of that business and have them focus on violent crime, on things that most people think police should be focused on. And right now we have them doing too much of the other, which is leading to disproportionality, but it's also not effective. They're not solving these other bigger crimes either. So, so that's, that's part of the shift that we need to do right now. And schools is part of that. Now in January, your bill to address workplace discrimination became very effective. What has been done to eliminate discrimination and abusive workplaces in Montgomery County? We've done a couple of things. We introduced uh, the Crown Act and passed it. You know, you see my, my twists here and <laughs> I see your natural hair everyone, and I see Noah. And then we all got a, we've all got a protected hairstyle here. I got a little something. You got a little something, <laughs> you got a little something there. You know, a little something. But, um, you know, so we passed the Crown Act, which is the creating a respectful and open world for natural hair. Uh, and what that did is it provided legal protection saying that hair discrimination is race discrimination, right? And and because previously you couldn't have that protection. You know, some if you had an afro, you had locks or twists, mm -hmm. the co court would throw your case out if you were told or fired from UPS or which it, there's tons of cases of this happening. So now you can't be discriminated against for your natural hair. Um, you also, uh, uh, it also is a big thing about self-worth, right? You know, like we are beautiful and the way God made us. We shouldn't have to conform to any standard of Eurocentric beauty. And too many women in particular, but and our, and our boys have had to do that. Um, and so that, that's one thing we've done. We've also uh, taken steps on sexual harassment and harassment in the workplace, which is a big issue. Um, you're seeing it play out with the, you know, the uh, governor in New York right now. We've seen a whole bunch of cases. Um, and this will lower the standard uh, for when you can claim sexual harassment or harassment in the workplace. So in most parts of the country, there's a really high standard. It has to, you have to, it has to be severe and pervasive. So like, you know, it has to be happening a lot and has to be really bad. And I, and I, I, you know, there's so, so many examples of when that standard wasn't met. A guy was working with his coworker. He came in her hotel room, took his clothes off, got on her bed. That, that was 
deemed not severe or pervasive enough because it happened one time. So it's just crazy stuff. Oh gosh, yeah. Yeah. So so we lowered the standard to it had to be uh, less than severe or pervasive, but it has to be more than a petty, uh, a petty uh, something petty or small or trivial slight, but something that was serious. And so that'll help because then you can actually get relief um, and you know bring a claim of workplace or other harassment. And hopefully that will be, serve that deterrent effect, you know? And so there's more we need to do, but those are two things that I led on the county uh, to, in response to some real life discrimination that people are seeing every day. You know, there's 200,000 black people in my county that wake up every day, decide how they're gonna present themselves to the world. And can I wear this hair to this job interview? Can I do that? I actually just got a report last night about at a Chick-fil-A, someone was fired because they had locks. And so we're investigating it. Now our Office of Human Rights is investigating. So it, it, it happens every day. And obviously the Me Too movement has shown the kind of sexual and harassment and discrimination women are facing in the workplace. Um, and so I'm just trying to strengthen those protections because I think all too often uh, we forget about it and it really reduces our productivity. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. let people feel safe. And so it's just not a good, uh, not a good thing for anybody. So, so those are a couple of things that we've done. Yeah, no, it's like, I feel like once a month, we'll see like a news story of a student being suspended for their hair or like just how they dress. And it's just, but it's great to hear that you are definitely active in um, protecting those things that we all do or have. Yeah, like who we are, right? Yeah, who we are. (laughs) It's a shame that we need protection, but we do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I know, Will, like when I first met you a while back ago, I can tell that um, I think, you know, you're broader appeal to especially people like me and people like my mother who you met, like, uh, you know, being a parent and a husband is a big part of your identity. Like I haven't often seen you without, you know, Shell or the girl that's back when I first met you. So what, um, you know, you obviously know what it's like to be a parent and to be a black father and to be working during this pandemic. Um, what have you kind of done and how has that kind of experience transition to you kind of working on behalf of, you know, black and Latino working families, but especially mothers, you know, especially as we celebrate Women's History Month, you know, what have you kind of done during like the pandemic to kind of ease that burden? Because it is, you know, it, that relates to childcare and all of these other issues, but what have kind of you done, um, you know, during this time to kind of ease that burden yeah. for those people? No, absolutely. You know, prior to my son being born, you know, as you know, Noah, you know, I was a house, I was in a house full of women and, and it was great, you know, my wife and my three daughters, um, and, you know, this pandemic has been brutal uh, to women, uh, and particularly women of color. Uh, I mentioned some of the stats earlier, you know, the health stats, the economic stats, um, but just the pressures are just insane, whether it be childcare, you know, if you look at the job losses in December, um, women accounted for all of the job losses, 167,000 jobs were lost, all of them were from women. Uh, men actually gained about 20,000 jobs. Uh, if you look at childcare, if you look at uh, trying to balance virtual school, the disproportionality of women in the hospitality industry uh, who have to go out of the work, out of the house. So it's a huge issue. We did a big forum with a whole bunch of women's groups or Montgomery County Commission on Women on all these issues that are impacting women during the pandemic. Uh, we, we elicited several kind of concrete uh, issues and challenges and potential solutions. And I've actually commissioned our Office of Legislative Oversight to do a deep dive into the statistics here in Montgomery County about how 
women have been impacted in employment, uh, in job losses, in, in closing of businesses, in uh, childcare, in rent, and you know, in, in, in uh, facing rental uh, challenges or eviction. And so that report is being worked on now. And what we hope to do is come out with some really uh, concrete funding and policy proposals that will help us recover equitably. Because one of the things I'm really focused on is like, all right, we're coming out now. Some people have been doing great during this pandemic, right? You know, like the stock market's up. If you're like wealthy, can work from home uh, and don't, you know, the, there was a stat like Jeff Bezos, who the former, you know, owner of Amazon, I think he sold it off now. He made uh, just between February and November, um, he made more money than uh, like you could have taken uh, like, I think it was something like $67 billion he made in that period. And, and so you could have taken, he could have paid every Amazon employee, which has like 100,000 employees. He could have paid all of them $100,000 and still been as rich as he was before yeah, the I pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like crazy. crazy. So, and that's like a lot of people, like if you're a millionaire, if you're, you know, that translates down. So like some people are doing really well, but some people have really, really gotten hit hard. And so how do we make sure that we get those people back where they need to be? And and, and women are in that category for sure, and particularly women of color. And so I'm, I'm really focused on that. Uh, and I'm trying to lift those issues up. And it's going to be a long, it's going to take years because it's just like when we lost our housing in the economic crisis in 08, you know, that eradicated black wealth and, and we're still suffering from that. So we really have to focus on it and we're going to have to have bolder solutions to do it. Yeah. I definitely, definitely um, agree because uh it's hit a lot of people. And like you said, I, I think it depends on where you're at economically, how it affected you. Um, because for some people it has been a blessing and then for others it's been very detrimental. Uh, so it's good to hear that like you're actively working to ease the burdens because Noah has been laughing like, bro, like that was the last stimmy we gonna get. Like what are we gonna do, bro? Um, well, you got another one coming. Y'all get your checks yet? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, wait, what do you mean? Another one after this? No, the, the 1400. Did you get Oh, that? yeah, yeah. We got you're that. I thought you meant another one. Yeah, I'm like, hold on. You got some more information I need to find out about. Yeah. Um, I missed that breaking news alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, last month, you announced that you'll be publishing a book in the spring entitled Black Fathers. Um, can you share what inspired you to, like, write that story or, you know, just... Yeah. like go with that yeah no i appreciate that I'm, I'm writing it now actually probably when i get off with y'all i'm gonna go back to writing it um it's called my black fathers the seven men who made me whole uh it's really a, it's a memoir it's a story about my life but told through the lens of these seven black men two of whom are my biological father and one's my stepfather you know mm -hmm. my parents divorced when i was six and the and then one the first one actually is uh one of the first the first chapter is about mr williams my the only black male teacher I ever had in the fourth grade, my math teacher, mm. who uh, taught me how to tie a tie and uh, taught me who the first person I witnessed code switch when he was talking to the janitor and slang and then how he talked in the classroom. And he just taught me a lot of things, even in that short period of time that I was with him. And uh, and then the last one is Barack Obama, who I worked for in the Senate when he was a senator and went in the White House. And when I was working for him, I got married, had had several of my children, and he just was a really important mentor uh, in guiding me through how to be in policy, how to be an attorney, how to be a dad, and balance all those things. And it's it's really a, a 
a goal to tell my story in an interest, which is an interesting story, but also uh, to tell, you know, the truth about black masculinity, about fatherhood. Uh, it's a story of redemption. You know, my, I was very estranged from my dad early on and we came back and I took care of him when he got cancer the last several years of his life and he lived with us. Uh, so it'll tell that story, but really kind of de debunk some of these myths about black men and fatherhood and, and to tell the rich story and complicated story and sad story and, you know, about how the society has impacted these relationships. And obviously you can't tell the story about black fatherhood without talking about women and, and, and their role in the family. So it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a holistic story, but I don't think there's been anything quite written that I've seen that's focused on the black fatherhood relationship. And even though many of these men are not my father, they were fathers for me and they helped me and are still helping me. That's the other point that this doesn't, it's not a, it's not, it doesn't end. It's a continuous process of support and mentorship um, and, and I, and wholeness uh, and a journey towards wholeness. So, so I think it'll be an interesting story. Uh, there'll be some good anecdotes and things in there and some life lessons. And, and I hope, uh, hope you guys read it. I mean, come back on next year and talk about it. Yeah, I'm waiting on my signed copy, you know, like, <laughs> please do. Uh, so Got well, it. that's all the questions that we have for you. I think, um, you know, our listeners are really going to enjoy this episode. We can tell that already. But I think how do, um, you know, not only your constituents, but just, you know, supporters of you, how do we stay in contact with you and make sure that we're aware of all of the great work uh, that you're doing? Awesome. Yeah, no, so I'm, I'm easy to find. I'm just at Will Jawando. So W-I-L-L-J-A-W-A-N-D-O on uh, Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, and you can just type in Will Jawando on Google. You get my office line if you live in Maryland or Montgomery County and you can reach out to us there as well. But I'm, I don't have a TikTok, but, uh, but, <laughs> but, you, but, you, but you can get me on Instagram. So yeah, I, uh, I, and I, when we respond, so that's the easiest way to get me. Awesome. So once again, Councilman, Councilman Will Jawando, thank you for joining us. So be sure to follow us on Twitter at WRGO and Instagram on the same handle. Be sure to check out our new merch that once again celebrates change agents in Georgia. You can check that out at what's really going on pod.com. Be sure to subscribe and listen on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and Google Play. Thank you. <laughs>